Well, thanks for joining us this morning. Like Andrew said, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, it is great to be with you. Thank you for taking time out of your week to come and sing with us and grow with us. Uh, and some of you coming to serve and uh, give back to others. It's great to be with you and to hang out for a little bit this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Corey and I'm the lead pastor here at GFC. And we are starting a new mini-series as we travel through the book of Luke. And so we've told you our our theme for the year is Hope Has a Name, and we're using Luke as our base text for that. And so we're going through Luke, not verse by verse, but little by little, and kind of using different situations and times in Luke to then spawn some other conversation and take a little bit of time to camp in some certain areas and reframe them and process what it means to follow Jesus, to have hope, and what Jesus Jesus teaches us about these times in our lives. And so we're starting this conversation called Overcoming Temptation, and we'll be in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 13 over the next three weeks. So we'll be there, we'll start in Luke 4 this week, and then we'll go next week and the week after as we kind of learn from Jesus and how he tackled temptation at a very important time in his life at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, but before we get to Luke, and we're going to go through a couple of passages before we get to Luke, but before we do, here's, here's how I want us to think about this conversation today, okay? Here's a thought that I think is true, and I think it's true no matter whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, and it's simply this. Who you are versus who you want to be is a struggle for everyone. Who you are versus who you want to be is a struggle for everyone. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, my guess is that there are things in your life that you wish were a little bit different, right? When you're a kid and you start to grow up, you get these ideas about what you want to be and who you want to be and where you want to live and what you want to do. I was having a conversation with my daughter, who's now six, the other day in the car, and she said, Dad, I think I want to be an astronaut, and then I'm going to stop being an astronaut so I can be in the Olympics, That's what she said she wants to do. And I said, you go for it. I said, maybe you should do the Olympics first because, you you know, maybe that, but, you know, whatever. You can do them in whatever order you want, right? We have these ideas of what we want to do, and we kind of dream a little bit and think about where we want to be. And we go through life, and we start to go down that path, and we start to figure some of that out. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes we take steps to be the person we think we want to be. So maybe that means you start to take a class if it's a hobby you want to pursue, or if it's a career you want, you actually go to school for that career, and you figure that out. Or if you want to live in a certain place, you move there, right? And so in some ways, we tackle some of these things we want to be. But inevitably, there comes a time where we're not exactly where we want to be. We didn't save enough money for this point in our life to buy the boat we thought we'd always have or the house we thought we'd always have, right? We didn't uh, pursue school as much as we should have, and now we're not at this point in life. Or there could be just something that you wish you were just better at, like you need to invest more time in a certain skill or hobby that you wish you could turn into a career maybe. And so if we went around the room, we're not, right? But if we go around the room, we think who you are currently, what's something you wish could be different. And everyone in the room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, would have something to say about that. And this is actually a topic that comes up in Scripture. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, this is what Paul says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Anyone ever been there before? 
Like you plan to get up earlier in the morning, right? You want to like go running or you got to get something done and you want to get up and you, the night before you have every intention, right? You're like, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this and this is going to happen. And then that alarm goes off and what happens? Snooze fest, right? You hit snooze multiple times or maybe I'll just do it tomorrow. Or There's every excuse, right? We, we say we want to do it. We have this desire and yet we don't do it. And this is where, if, if for us, I think, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is where I think actually temptation comes into this formula. And here's why. If you're not a follower of Jesus, like, this is why I think this is part of it. Because if sin, if we were really just good people that always wanted to do what was right for us all the time, that would be an easy thing to do. There's not really another logical reason why this would be the case. We've all felt this. Why this would be the case other than the fact that sin is a reality in our lives. Because if we were all good and sin wasn't real and we didn't have a sin nature as a part of us, we would naturally want to do what is best for ourselves all the time. And it would just come natural. But it doesn't. In fact, we struggle to do what's right even when we know it's best for us. And that is what gets us into this quandary where we start to have this friction between who we are and who we want to be. Because we have to deal with this bit of us that says, I don't want to pursue that, or it's not so easy to pursue that in our lives. So that's where we're going to be today. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to be for the next couple of weeks. And Luke really helps us understand this. Because Luke, going through Luke and just studying it a little bit more for, for this year and kind of processing it, I don't think Luke says anything just by accident. Like, he built his book that he wrote on purpose. He wanted us and his readers at the time to understand exactly what was going on. And Pastor Andrew taught us a couple weeks ago that Luke was a very credible historian. And we've seen some of that already where he gives us these details and these things we need to know in order to process down the road. And so I actually want to go back to Luke chapter 1 just for a moment and look at verses 1 through 4 again. Luke 1 verses 1 and 2 says this, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. He goes on in verses 3 and 4. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Why? So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Listen, here's what's going to happen today, right? We're going to hit a nerve at some point. I think at some point in this conversation, there's going to come a time where all of us are going to be tempted to go, yeah, this is just too hard, or no, that's not me, or no, like our, your sin nature is right, going to show up and go, this is not me, right? I don't need to do this. This isn't what I have to worry about. Why? Because this is going to strike a nerve where we're going to actually have to do some hard work of evaluating like what's going on in our own lives and say, what does God want me to do in this situation? But Luke writes this. He says, I want you to be certain of the truth. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know that the things I'm writing to you are true. And this is the way it played out. And this is what went on. Because what our answer is as to who we believe Jesus was or who he is, is going to greatly influence how we dig into this sin problem. And Luke, we, we've talked a little bit about Luke 1, and then we moved into, we skipped Luke 2, right, because we didn't do the Christmas story, because we just did that. And then we moved into Luke 3. And we had some conversations about Jesus getting lost and, and Jesus being baptized. And then at the end of chapter 3, very interestingly, Luke actually gives us the genealogy of Jesus. 
We're not going to go there. We're not going to read the whole thing because it takes a while. But there's two very interesting pieces that happen in this. The first thing is that Jesus is listed as that he was known as the son of Joseph. Not that he was the son of Joseph, but that he was known as, right? Because he wasn't biologically Joseph's son, but he was known as Joseph's son. So we get this, like Luke acknowledges the fact that he knows that Jesus wasn't biologically Joseph's son. And so everybody else in the list is son of blank, son of blank, son of blank, right? All the way down till we get to Adam. He draws the line from Jesus to Adam. He goes, Adam was the son of God. And these two people, like Jesus, obviously, you're like, yeah, Jesus plays a big role in understanding scripture. But Adam is also massive in our understanding of our sin problem and what's going on in this conversation. And so the first thing Luke wants us to know is, who is Jesus? Right? That's the point of writing this whole gospel. What's your answer to this? If you were to go to somebody on the street that you don't know, maybe they're a follower of Jesus or not, and you just said, who do you think Jesus was? We might get back different question or different answers, right? We might get back. He's my savior, right? If you meet somebody else, that's also a follower of Jesus. You might get back. He was a good teacher, but he was a prophet. You might get somebody that says, oh, he's just somebody that didn't really exist that we, some people think exists, right? You could have all kinds of different ideas about this, but what our answer is or what your answer is to this question matters greatly. But here's the other one that matters too. Who was Adam? Because who was Adam means whether is going to dictate whether you believe and I believe that sin is actually a problem in our lives or not. Because Adam is the way that sin got to us. And if we believe Adam was real, we believe what the scriptures say, then, and we believe what Luke is teaching, right? Because he makes the genealogy to tie it all the way back to Adam. He says, this is massive for how we understand ourselves. And we're actually going to go back to Romans for a minute. We're going to go to Romans 5. By the way, if you uh, want to, you can always scan this little QR code on the back of the follow, or on the Next Steps card. That will take you to our follow-along page. And all of our notes are there. All of the verses are there. You can ask a question, submit a prayer request. All those things are there. So if you don't have notes in front of you, that's the place to find them. But in Romans 5, starting in verse 12, this is what it says. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Now, two things here, one to make clear and one that's a little bit confusing, right? We'll make it a little clear. First of all, it's very important what the first half, what verse 12 says, right? Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. So everyone sinned. This is in all play. Everyone's problem is sin. So we don't get to look at this and just say, except me, right? We all are included in this. So that's telling from the beginning. Now, it gets a little confusing because it says, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not sin. Okay, why does it say that? That's a little confusing. Here's, here's what he's getting at. If you think back to the beginning, Adam and Eve were given one rule, right? They were given the rule, don't eat from one tree. And they did it. And then they left the garden. God kicked them out. Well, guess what? They couldn't, that rule didn't matter anymore to them because they couldn't eat it anymore because they couldn't even get back in because the angels with the flaming swords were keeping them out. But the idea is that the law hadn't been given yet. The 613 rules that the Israelites had to follow hadn't been given yet. So after they leave the garden, there's this gap here between don't eat the tree and don't do all the other stuff. But it was still, like they were still sinful. They still did not fulfill 
the, the relationship they were supposed to have with God and the relationship they were supposed to have with others. Just look at Cain and Abel's relationship, right? They were not doing what they were supposed to do. And so they still had this sin problem. They still had this issue of death in them because of their relationship with God had been broken. Going on to verse 14, it says, Still everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. Adam was the beginning. He was supposed to be the one who spawned the relationship with God that we had that was supposed to continue on doing good things forever. We were supposed to have a good relationship with God. Sin comes in the picture. Now we are separated from God, and this is everyone's problem. This isn't something we can remove ourselves from. Going on in verse 15. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes to set right what Adam did wrong. Verse 16. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Verse 17, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So you see why this is so important. That we understand who Jesus is, and we understand who Adam was. And we understand these two things in reference to who we are and the impact it has on us. If we are actually people that came down from Adam, right, we all have this issue and we have to do something about it. It's this issue Paul talks about in chapter 7. I wish I could do what I wanted to do, but I don't do it. But he says Jesus shows up for a very important reason. And so when we look at these two very different men, right? Who is Jesus? Jesus shows up to give forgiveness and reconciliation. Who is Adam? Condemnation and death. And that's where we're stuck if we don't know Jesus. If we don't recognize who Jesus was and why he came and how he had victory over sin and then offers that to us. Again, to have this conversation, we have to humble ourselves and say, this is, this is a problem I have. And by the way, this problem, once you follow Jesus, it's not like temptation just disappears, right? God can do that. And I have heard of people that have a very specific sin issue and they decide to follow Jesus. And like, I was never tempted to do that thing ever again. Sometimes it happens, but largely it's, it, we all sin every single day. So it's not that this is going to disappear, but then how do I, as a follower of Jesus, interact with my temptation and what do I do about it? And that's what we're going to dig into in Luke chapter So we're now at Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Verses 1, 2, and 3 is what we're going to read first. So this is what it says. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. Remember, he had just been baptized. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. One of the most obvious verses in the Bible, right? You don't eat something for 40 days, you're going to be hungry. So he gets to this point. Spending all this time, he's very hungry. Verse 3. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Now let's, let's pause for a minute, right? Time out. If I'm Jesus, 
And I, even as reading this, right? And you just see, this is the temptation. Turn rock into bread. I remember when I, you know, without studying this and digging in a ton, I, I would read this and I would go, why is that a problem? <laughs> like we know Jesus does miracles where he turns water into wine. We know Jesus does miracles where he takes loaves of bread and fish and multiplies them for thousands of people. Like why is this one thing an issue? We're going to get there. But I think it's very interesting. First of all, in the first temptation of the three that we'll see over the next few weeks, that Satan attacks a physical need. We all have physical needs, right? We have to eat, we have to drink water, we need shelter, we need clothes, all of those things. And the first thing Satan goes after is a physical need. Something that Jesus would have to do. And he was on the verge of needing to, I mean, you don't eat for 40 days, you're, you're getting to the point where you have to eat something. And so he attacks his physical need. And I think this is very important as well, that Satan goes after Jesus when he's at his weakest, This should speak to us volumes about the humanity of Jesus. Like Satan knows that he's a man. Satan knows that if he gets in at this point, this is massive. Remember, Jesus is just starting his ministry. So he's he's about 30 years old. He's been baptized and he's spending 40 days in the wilderness. Why? Connecting with God, preparing for ministry. He was getting ready to go through a grueling three years where he would do ministry to all these people, and he would get that would culminate then in his death and resurrection. Like he had to be prepared for what was to come. Satan realizes that, goes, he hasn't eaten for this long. He's got to be tired. I need to get in now. If I can get him to be tempted now, and he can sin now, I nullify his whole ministry, and the death and resurrection thing is is off the table. Right? I'll take him out right now. And we know this, right? You don't make good decisions when you're tired and hungry. You ever see, you know, those Snickers commercials, you're not you when you're hungry, and they like eat those Snickers and they change, right? This is, again, another thing that is universally true for everybody. You're tired, you didn't get a lot of sleep last night, the next day you're irritable, you're frustrated, you don't make good decisions. You haven't eaten in a while, you're getting, you know, blood sugar's low, all that stuff, you need some protein, whatever it is, you make bad decisions. So Satan jumps in, at this very moment when he thinks Jesus is most vulnerable. And the way that he decides to go after Jesus is through a physical need, and he tries to do this too. And this is, this is something that always happens with temptation. Temptation is always an attempt to drive a wedge between us and God. Temptation is always that. The whole idea of following Jesus or being obedient to God is simply to say that his plan— His model of life is best for us. And so when Satan comes in, he tries to drive a wedge between that and say, that may not actually be what's best for you. Or are you sure that's what's best for you? Or is that really who you want to be? And I think it's very telling in verse 3 to look at the kind of question Satan asked Jesus. Let's just go back to verse 3 for a moment. It says, then the devil said to him, if, he starts with this if, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Not unlike, it's not exactly like, but it's not unlike the question that Satan or the serpent asked to Eve in the garden. Right? Did God really say? He puts this nugget of doubt in your mind or in Jesus' mind or in Eve's mind. He says, is, is this really what God wants from you? Is this really what's supposed to be happening right now? Is this really what you want? And I think ultimately Satan's question was this, that he was asking Jesus, who are you or who do you want to be? Let me, let me explain why I say that. 
Because when he comes in and says, if you are the son of God, he's kind of saying, why don't you prove it? We don't know that Jesus did any miracles until this point. We have no record of it. So if Jesus hadn't done it yet, Satan comes in and goes, well, if, if you're really son of God, like if God really has favor, why don't, why don't you just do it? And why don't you just take care of this physical need that you have? I mean, the rocks are here. You clearly are hungry. Why don't you just... But Jesus knew that he needed God in this moment, not food. Like he knew his purpose for being there. There's a reason Jesus didn't pack snacks on this trip, okay? Because he needed to be focused on the way God was going to grow him and what he was doing to him and to prepare him for this ministry. And so he says, who are you? Are you really the son of God? Can you really do this? Do you really need to go more, you know, more time? You've been doing this for 40 days. Is this really what you have to do? And he drives this wedge and he says, why don't you just prove to yourself who you think you are? Why don't you just do what you say you can do as the son of God? So what's Jesus's response? Verse four. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. And when Jesus was saying this, he was actually quoting a verse from Deuteronomy 8. So I want to show you that verse 2. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says this, Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, what I need right now is not bread. What I need is God. What I need is the relationship with my Heavenly Father. What I need is to prepare for what's going to come. And I need to set aside food at this moment to be able to differentiate from what I need and what I want. And this is where some of this, especially as, as Americans and as Westerners, when we go, it's just a snack, right? Like, I don't understand. Why, why is this, this bread issue such a big temptation? Why does Satan start there? It's because we just... We have this. Like, it, uh, bread is, is a right to us. Right? We just, it's easy. You go home, open the fridge, you're good. We figure it out. But the difference, this is what really gets us, especially, I think, the way that we understand what it means to be a follower. The difference between what I want and what I need is bigger than I think. There are certain things that we, we believe we have rights to just because of where we live in the world. And if I asked you, uh, if you woke up in the middle of the night and your house was on fire, what are you going to grab? Now set living things aside. Okay, children, pets, they're all out. Now maybe there's some pets you would leave. I don't know. But like you get all the living things out. What's the next thing you're grabbing? My guess is you're like me and we're grabbing this probably, right? Because it's, it's there. It's got all my contacts on it. It's got, I mean, you can rationalize exactly why. I can get to my insurance information on this thing, right? So So important. But is it a need? I could rationalize yes, but I would probably, should probably say no. There are other things we might grab, a laptop or something else. There, there are things that we have changed in our minds to be needs that aren't really. And the, the gap between need and want in our minds is bigger than thing. This is why Jesus had to differentiate between I need God, but I want food, even though he had been hungry for 40 days. In our minds, in my mind, that's automatically a need, right? I didn't eat for 40 days. I need bread. Jesus says, no, I need God. And this is, again, one of those tensions where we have to figure out what are we tempted with and what's actually a want and what's actually 
and need. And maybe this will help you, right? What we want can get us in trouble. When we chase after what we want more than what we need, it can get us in trouble. If I chase after what I want financially more so than I should, it's going to get me in trouble because I'm not going to be able to pay for the needs I have. If I chase after an opportunity or a hobby more so than the relationship I have with my children or my wife, that's going to get me in trouble because the relationship is going to lose and I'm going to win on what I'm trying to chase. You can do the same thing with a job. You chase the wrong thing that you want and don't pay attention to the things you need and then that gets you into trouble. But here's the difference. What we need will produce and sustain life. And when we understand what we need rather than what we want and we change and we focus on those things, here's what happens. A focus on what is needed and not what is wanted will change our desires. So this is part of this sin conversation too. Making sure we can differentiate what I want, what I need. That's where Satan attacked Jesus. He knew what he wanted, but Jesus knew what he needed and he chose to go after what he needed every single time. And one of the really cool things that happened to me as I was uh, studying for this week specifically, um, and, I, and I thought I had, I had put a bow on this conversation in my mind. I knew where I was landing the plane and what was going on. I had studied and, and figured it all out. And I started to read a book called Atomic Habits. It's by a guy named James Clear. Um, if you haven't read it, I would recommend it. It is not a uh, Christian book, but it's not a non-Christian book. I actually heard uh, the author on a Christian podcast. It was already in my Amazon cart, and so I bought it because I was like, oh, good, now I know the conversation. Anyway, all of that to say, as I was reading this book, I started to realize that this idea of temptation and what he was talking about with habits just went exactly like this. And here's why. I actually want to show you guys a diagram of what this means. And so here's the diagram that was in the book. This is James Clear's diagram. It's not mine, so he, he'll, he'll have credit for this. But here's what happens, right? We sometimes decide we want to change, and we focus on the outcome. And so we decide we want to do something. We want to lose weight. We want to run a marathon. We want to do X, Y, and Z. We don't want to do a certain sin anymore. And we focus on that outcome. And our response sometimes is just go, well, I'll just do it. Right? Next time that thing shows up that I'm supposed to say no to, I'll just say no. Right? All the drug commercials when I was a kid. Just say no. Right? And you just say no. But here's what happens. Let's just take the idea of running a marathon. If you wanted to run a marathon, you're probably not, you're not going to start, if you're not already a runner, you're not going to start by running 26 miles automatically. You're going to have to build up. And so maybe you start to run and you start to get somewhere and you start to see some differences. But there might come a time, especially if you're like me, where you're getting to the point where just three miles is hard enough. Okay? And I, I'm going to do the math in my brain and I'm going to go, I'm at three miles. I need 26. That's a long way away. How much is this outcome actually worth to me? And maybe you get stuck in the detail, you get stuck in, I don't want to do this, I hit the snooze, right, because I don't want to get up and do it. And all of a sudden, now the outcome is disconnected from where I want to be, and I don't reach the outcome anymore. But here's what he would say the difference is, and and I'm going to show you why this is true scripturally too in a minute. He goes, you have to start with your identity and work out to get the outcome. And he says this because, he goes, if you run one time, right, sticking with the marathon analogy, if you get up one day and run, you can call yourself a runner. And all of a sudden, it changes in your mind. Okay, like I've done it. Now I've become a runner. So then what happens is when you have the opportunity to choose what you're going to do, you ask yourself the question, what would a runner do? 
So if you're sitting on the couch and you have some time to go running or sit and play video games or watch TV or whatever you're going to do, you ask yourself the question, what would a runner do? Well, a runner would get up and go run. And it changes when it gets to the heart of who you want to be and who you think you are. One of the other examples he used briefly was if you were someone that was trying to quit smoking, he said, if you just, if someone offered you a cigarette and you were trying to quit smoking, all you said was, no, I'm trying to quit. What do you do? You leave the door open to not quit. He said, when you say, I'm not a smoker, if you woke up that morning and hadn't smoked it, you can say you're not a smoker. He goes, that's a very different conversation. Now, here's why this matters for us, okay, and why this matters scripturally. Here's what I believe. Your identity will ultimately decide your response to temptation. Who you identify as and what you believe is true about who you are will impact and ultimately decide your response to temptation. If I'm tempted with something and I look at this and I say, I am a child of God or I am a follower of Jesus and I get tempted with something and I ask myself the question, what would a follower of Jesus do? What would a child of God do in this situation? I know the answer to that. And if I'm going to be who God says I am, a child of God, then I'm going to choose to be that person. I had to learn this uh, when we got married, and maybe you did too, or maybe you're a little quicker to the punch than I was. But I had to learn that I had to, when I was doing things for my wife, I had to do things because I'm her husband and because I want her to feel loved, not just because if I don't do it, she's going to be mad at me. Okay? When you're growing up as a kid, usually your motivation, at least for me, was if I don't do what's right, someone's going to be mad at me, or I'm going to get in trouble, or I'm going to get a consequence, right? Something's going to happen that's bad. But when we change our thought process and go, no, like I'm her husband, I want her to be happy, I want to serve her and, and be a good husband to her like God is asking me to be, now I make decisions based on being her husband and not just being the person who doesn't want her mad at me. Does that make sense? It's a complete difference in how I'm thinking. It's not just about I don't want to get in trouble. It's because I want to be the person married to her. And if I want that to continue, I have to change the way I think about it. And so when Jesus gets offered this question about bread, simple as bread, his response was, no, I know what I need and not what I want. I'm going to put aside what I want to be present with my heavenly father because that's what I need and that's what the savior of the world does in this moment. And for us, it's what does a child of God do in this moment when we get tempted with those things, when we're offered something we shouldn't have, when we are tempted to go down a path we shouldn't go down. So here's here's how I want to kind of land the plane today. And this is going to be, I think this is going to rub a little bit, okay? I might hit a nerve, so just be, just prepare yourself, Okay? I want to think about this through our physical needs lens because that's what Jesus was tempted with in this part of the story. And so here's the question. Is your, is your response to your physical needs a reflection of your identity in Jesus? We don't think about this a lot. At least I don't. I, I don't think the church as a whole in America thinks about our, the response to our physical needs being a reflection of our identity in Jesus. 
and I'll just make light of it for a minute, but I think it's true. We, gluttony is a sin, right? Like, but we don't talk about that a lot. And we live next door to one of the biggest gluttony farms ever, right? All of us have gone to Shady Maple and eaten to the point where we couldn't stand up for a while, okay? And I'm not saying that that's just automatically, like, that's wrong, that's a sin. Like, no, you want to go to Shady Maple on your birthday? Please, go eat as much as you want, right? I'll take you because it's free on your birthday, right? But here's the thing. We don't think about the fact that what we do with what God has given us, our physical body, matters and is a reflection of our identity in him. That's not necessarily something that's on our minds a lot, but it was on Jesus's mind in this moment. What he chose for his physical body was not what he was supposed to be focused on in that moment. And so we have to process this through our physical needs as well. So here's my challenge for you and me this week, okay? Evaluate your eating exercise, and sexual habits against your identity in Jesus. So when you look at, when I look at my eating habits, is it influenced by my identity in Jesus? When I look at my exercise habits, now let me, let me just be very careful with this, okay? This is not a, you need to be working out five times a week and have washboard abs to follow Jesus, okay? That's not the point. But the point is, Are we making decisions with our physical body that identify with our relationship to Jesus? It's easy for us to say, no, I'm not going to steal from someone. I'm not going to use my physical hands, right, to go steal from somebody. That's not what I'm going to do. But it's more difficult when we have the conversation about, am I taking care of what God has given me? And there are certain things I could land on, right? We would look at it and we would go, oh, that's clearly bad for you. So that's a sin. That's bad for your physical appearance, or you're bad for your physical body, so that's a sin. But yet, would we do the same thing with, right, right, with coffee, or with soda, or with whatever else you want to put in blank, right? The amount of sugar, we, I don't know, right? So this is where you have to do it, and this is how we know if it's a problem. Are your habits in these areas, or your responses in these areas, are they creating unhealth in your body or in your relationships? That's really the question. Are my eating habits, my exercise habits, and my sexual habits, are they causing unhealth in my physical body or in the relationships I have with people around me? Or in my relationship with God? I get that this is a little more difficult because we don't talk about this so much. But the reality is what we do with our physical bodies matters. Otherwise, just eating a loaf of bread would have been no big deal for Jesus in this moment. But he had to choose. He had to choose what he was going to feed, what he wanted or what he needed. And he had to choose in that moment what was his identity. Was it just as a hungry human or was it as a follower of God, a child of God? And what we choose in those moments is going to matter greatly. And so the next couple weeks, we're going to go through the other two temptations uh, in this passage. And... We're going to dig into this, but I want us to focus on this idea of identity. What what do we do? How does a person who is a child of God respond to temptation? And how do we learn from Jesus how to do that? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for showing us what to do uh, when Satan comes our way. Uh, It can be a difficult challenge to understand 
what we do in those moments and how we respond. And I, I don't know what the what we would all identify as something that's a problem in our lives, a sin struggle we're having, what's going on, but in a room this size, there's there's those of us who are saying, I, I have struggled with this thing for a long time. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to change it, whatever it might be. And God, I ask that you'd give us the wisdom to be able to understand how someone who is a child of God would react in that moment. And I ask that you would put the things on our hearts over the next couple of weeks about what to do in those moments. Like, what does it actually look like to flee from temptation and not just give in? And I ask that ultimately we would be able to also come around one another and encourage each other to find our identity in you and then to live out of that space even when temptation is something we're struggling with. We thank you that we have a church family, small groups, whatever it might be, to just encourage us and uh, be go on this road beside us because we understand each other. We thank you that you understood it too, that you were human and you got what it meant to struggle with this as well. In Jesus' name, amen.